Hello, Malik. How are you? It's great to meet you, uh, I guess, on the podcast. I mean, we met a few few minutes before, but how are you doing? Good. Well, hey, nice to meet you, Angela, as well, and uh, good to be with you on this podcast. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, thank you so much for joining. Uh, we've quickly had about a 15-minute conversation, and I'm already excited to jump in because you're fascinating, uh, your background and your book around future-proofing organizations and leaders and people and capabilities, I think, is just a fantastic fit for this season, which is really all around Mm -hmm. disrupting the world of work. So let's start with an introduction. Please tell us who you are and uh, what makes you human? That's usually a question I ask guests if you uh, want to tell us about your personal um, uh, endeavors, but also your professional. Sure. If uh, you ask my family, they would say what makes me human is all my imperfections, um, because that's what uh, you know. That that's what brings us uh, all to the core of who we are, right, as humans. But uh, a bit of my background, as I was uh, sharing with you earlier, Angela, I grew up in India, um, and then went to the U.S. Uh, spent 14 years there. Uh, did my master's uh, in business administration. Uh, worked there for a couple of large companies out of Denver, Colorado. And then, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I was sent on a three-month assignment to the Philippines. Um, and my boss never told me that uh, it was not really a three-month assignment. Uh, he was sending me here for life. So I've been living in the Philippines for the last 15 years, and I've been loving it. Um, um, just recently, I ended my stint as the CEO of one of the largest uh, BPO companies in the world. It's called Inspiro. We had close to uh, 12,000 employees around the world. Uh, And then I decided last uh, March that I was going to take some time off, travel with my family, and um, do all the things that I always wanted to do. And then, obviously, what happened? You know, as they say, uh, life is what happens when you have other plans. And that's exactly what happened to me, and I'm sure to you as well. Um, We all got stuck during the lockdowns, and uh, I said, hey, if I'm not going anywhere, then I'm going to take on a project that I always meant to do, and that was to write a book. And so literally within um, six months from April of last year uh, to October of last year, I researched, wrote, edited, and published the book. It went live on November 14th of last year. That's wonderful. First of all, congratulations. That's pretty phenomenal. Uh, I think everyone during... Uh, the quarantine had some kind of uh, extra motivation, extra drive to get things done that they haven't been able to do or they've been dreaming about. For me, it was this podcast. So for you, it was that book. So that's amazing. Yes. And congratulations on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for being on. And, uh, you know, thank you for sharing your background, the journey thus far. And so I'm curious to know, uh, you know, you talk a lot about the future of work, and I know that's kind of a buzzword. So tell us, you know, given that you are uh, an (laughs) ex-CEO, you know, current entrepreneur, what is the future of work and what were you seeing when you were actually in industry? Um, What are some of the trends or the patterns that are moving today? Yeah, so the genesis of my book was um, during the last three years of my career as a CEO. I saw uh, three very distinct trends actually manifested themselves uh, at the workplace. Uh, number one, I saw artificial intelligence slowly infiltrating 
within our organization, in our processes, in our jobs. I saw uh, digital natives basically storming the workplace and turning it upside down. In fact, 90% um, of the people, actually 95% of the people we hired in the last three years of my stay there were all either Gen Zers or millennials. And the third thing I noticed was that um, the gig economy was really changing the way how the who got the job done, but also where, when, and how. And uh, when I started doing some more research during the pandemic uh, lockdown, I realized that uh, these three trends are so um, under the radar that we, if we don't spend enough time thinking about them, they're going to hit us like a big wave and can drown us all. And so I thought maybe that's the book I wanted to write, that um, given these three very powerful trends, how do you future-proof your careers and how do you future-proof your companies? Mm. Yeah, there's kind of a, um, to your point, there's an individual reflection to that. Like how, how do I start to think about my skill set and my capabilities and then there's an organizational piece, which is how are we attracting the best talent in different yes. ways, getting creative, because what we're doing now is not working. <laughs> uh, yes. It's, you know, the traditional workplace, I think, is dying. Yep. And I think that's scary. So how was that for you as a CEO thinking, you know, thinking about those trends? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it became very clear to me that um, we had to map out the individual careers over the next 10 years for every employee and see whether artificial intelligence was going to replace either the entire job or some of the tasks that they were doing within the job. And I write that in the book that there are three different things that if you are doing as part of your job that would be replaced by artificial intelligence over the next 10 years. Uh, number one, if anything you do is repetitive, boring, predictable, AI will be able to do that job. Um, the second thing I write in the book is that uh, um, if what you do has a very defined purpose and there is a large set of historical data that you can train AI algorithm with, then AI can do your job. So AI is able to now read memograms better than trained human professionals. Why? Because there is a very defined objective and there is a large set of historical data you can train AI algorithm with. And the third thing is that if uh, what you do requires only basic cognitive skills, uh, learning, reasoning, predicting, uh, those tasks could be done by AI as well. So then the obvious question is then, what is left for the humans to do? And that's where our inherent skills and talents come to play. Uh, what are some of the things that are very inherent in us? You know, number one, um, we can create something out of nothing. We can look at a sunset and be inspired to paint a masterpiece or write a poem. Uh, AI is not able to do that today. Uh, AI will just look at the sunset and say, okay, that's a sunset. It's not able to be inspired by it. Um, we have the ability to see things holistically. You know, we are able to look at a variety of angles. So imagine if... AI was the president of a country or a CEO of a company during this COVID pandemic uh, crisis, it would have failed miserably because only human beings are able to look at the societal impact, the economic impact, uh, you know, a variety of impact this crisis is bringing to us. Uh, so that's another thing that we have an advantage over and how do we instill that quality 
to be able to see things holistically without just looking at it only from an operational perspective or a HR perspective or a marketing perspective. And we need to cultivate more human beings who can see things in a, in a general management way. Uh, the third thing that I uh, write about is that uh, we have the ability to lead and influence people. And one day maybe AI will be able to do that. And that's why I mentioned to you earlier, Angela, that this book is written for the next 10 years, not for the next 100 years, because God knows what AI will be able to do by then. So we have the ability to lead and influence people. And uh, that's a very unique skill. So we need to cultivate that. We need to focus on that and create the next set of leaders who are able to bring their humanity to the workplace. I love that. Yeah, it's um, what you mentioned, I think, is, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about the, the, art, the artificial intelligence uh, being, of course, it's going to, to evolve. But I, I agree with you. I think there's just some things that are part of the human condition that are unique and brilliant and uh, figuring out that magic, I guess, with your own skill set and also the skill set and the capabilities of your people, I think is, is really important. Uh, so kind of moving to the, your point about the gig economy, because I think it's, yeah. a, it's a great tie-in because I, I feel like people are chasing experiences and they're chasing experiences that value that human element that might be missing from artificial intelligence, right? And so, and I also think it's a natural um, freelancing, the gig economy in general, people who typically engage in that usually have a skill set, but they're, they're learning holistically about different industries because they're servicing different industries. And so their individual capability is growing, but they're also adding value at scale, which is a really interesting concept. So Tell me a little bit about where you think that's going to go and, and where we are today with the great resignation and all the things we're hearing about uh, around how the, the wave of change is happening around the workplace. Yeah, I, I, you know, as I mentioned to you, Angela, before, um, when I was doing research for the book, um, I knew that the gig economy was a very powerful force, but I was not sure whether I was going to even add that into the book. But then as I started doing research across all three trends, I realized that that's probably the most powerful trend among all because it's about our innate desire to be free. You know, think about where is the frontier of freedom today? Why do we say, thank God it's Friday and not thank God it's Monday? Because from Monday to Friday, we lose some of our freedom. And if there is a way as humans, we can get that freedom back, then we have a life made, right? And that's what the freelancing allows you to do. It allows you to work on your own terms. Um, you have so much control over who you work with. That's always the biggest problem, right? It's not what you work with or when you work with, but who you work with. You have a complete control. You can decide whether you want to work with client XYZ or not. Uh, you can work uh, when you are most predictably uh, the strongest in your uh, vocation, right? If, if you think that you're most creative at 2 a.m. in your pajamas at kitchen table, guess what? Do it. Make it happen. Nobody's there to that tell sounds you, like me, you by the way. That sounds like me with some ice cream on the side and <laughs> <laughs> like drawing right, something right. on a wall somewhere. <laughs> yeah. At times like me as well. And we all have those times where like, uh, you know, maybe our creative 
time zones are not between nine to five, then why are we forcing people to do that? Um, so freelancing is the next wave that's gonna really change the future of work. And uh, if you look at the numbers, you know, in the U.S. alone, uh, roughly 35% of the U.S. workforce is somehow involved in uh, freelancing. And we are not just talking about Uber drivers or the folks who deliver pizza at your home. We're talking about um, highly trained professionals in the areas of accounting, marketing, uh, computer design, graphical design, many very advanced fields, right? When I was doing research, um, I looked up uh, the Upwork, which is one of the biggest uh, platform for freelancing. I found a graduate of Harvard Law School with his profile. I mean, obviously, his rate was so expensive. <laughs> I don't know whether he's, you know, anybody's paying him for anything. And I also saw a couple of Harvard MBAs. So you can tell that there are people who are saying, oh, no, I forget about Wall Street, forget, forget about working for the big five consulting firms. I'm gonna strike out on my own. I'm gonna put my profile on Upwork and see if somebody's willing to pay for my services. And I mean, look at your life, Angela. We were just talking about how you're making that transition. You've been working at Fortune 500 companies for many years, very successful career, and you are in that process of transitioning to strike out on your own. Yeah, it's, um, well, the, the, the piece around freedom really, you know, hit home for me, you know, when you said that. And I think it's also designing, designing your time, designing your, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a builder. So even when I worked within Fortune 500 companies, I always was someone who loved going in, building, and then helping that, yeah. helping that team sustain whatever I built, right? So building the behaviors and the adoption of it. And so I think people who are natural builders kind of tend to have this entrepreneurial spirit and they either find companies that support that entrepreneurial spirit or kill it, (laughs) you know, and not say that mine was killed necessarily, but uh, at some point I think that spirit either, it needs needs to live uh, internally as an intrapreneur. I don't know if you've, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you've heard that term before. Um, So what can, how can companies, I guess there's two options, right? Companies can either, then they should probably explore the idea of freelancers or uh, contingent working as a part of their workforce model. Uh, But what are some things that companies can do to kind of duplicate that freedom within a company and create more entrepreneurs so that that uh, that that need is satisfied with people who are builders and and like to uh, and have that entrepreneurial spirit? Yeah, I think um, that's an excellent point. I actually write about that um, in the book that, you know, the the future belongs to the companies who have created that spirit of entrepreneurship, right? Because think about it, as a company in the past, you used to compete with other companies for talent. Now you have one more competitor, and that is people's desire to strike out on their own. So when you're looking for people, they're wondering, okay, do I join this company or do I start something on my own? That was not an option I had when I was starting out my career. That was not an option my parents had. That's an option Gen Zers and millennials have, all of us have now. And they are utilizing that. 
And in order for you to stand out as, as a company that they would like to work for, you do need to create a spirit of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship. Um, and, and the way to do that is uh, look at companies like Spotify, look at companies like Netflix, look at companies like Amazon. What's different between them and some of the traditional companies, let's say like JCPenney or Sears, companies who have filed for bankruptcies over the last uh, two years? The difference is the Spotify's of the world, they took their employees who were sitting on a mothership and moving very slowly and put them in smaller groups and put them in speedboats. So imagine if you have an opportunity to work for a company and company on your first day says, hey, look, you are part of this group and on your own, you will decide who is the leader of that group, who will do what within that group, and that role could keep changing based on your skill set, based on your strengths, as long as what you are doing is aligned with our overarching goal. That's exactly what Spotify is doing. They are, uh, they are utilizing agile methodology in their workplace, uh, which requires basically to break down uh, all the barriers, break down all the walls, break down all the layers, and it puts essentially the CEO of the company at the same level as an entry-level person who is part of that squad, they call it, uh, who is on a speedboat. And they're able to move very, very fast. And that's why Spotify has gone from zero subscribers to now over 100 million subscribers in a, you know, no time. Same thing with Netflix. Same thing with Amazon. Um, and, you, you know, it's very easy to ask ourselves, like, well, maybe it works for this new age technology companies, but that's not the case. I know many traditional companies, including ING, which is one of the you know, most uh, revered financial organizations in the world. They have a history that dates back to 1840s. And yet, just recently in 2016, they adapted and they embraced this agile way of doing things. And they are significantly better because of that. So as long as companies do that, they would be able to attract the younger generations. Because at the end of the day, guess what? By 2030, 66% of our workforce will be millennials and Gen Zers, the people we think are the interns or the you know, soya latte drinking, headphone wearing uh, hippies. They'll be running the show. So we might as well get to know them. Yeah, it kind of cracks me up uh, when I talk to like you know leaders and... CEOs and you know they talk about millennials like they're kids. Like I'm a millennial, yeah. right? And I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm like close I'm to talking 40. about millennials and here I'm <laughs> probably talking to a millennial here. No, and that's the thing. Yeah, it's like yeah. people forget. You know, your oldest millennial is almost is forty, and yeah. has kids of their own and is yeah. running businesses. And so it's not you know it's not millennials we need to look out for. We're we're old news. The Gen Zs they're a whole new breed, uh, which is. Different purpose-driven and yes. uh, socially conscious and yes. really asking the tough questions to organizations say, what are you going to do for me? Yeah. And <laughs> the is, world. Yeah. And the world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a whole new, you know, and we could, we could talk about 
you know, I would love at some point to talk to you about like the, the purpose element of this, uh, because mm-hmm. this is another piece that I feel like it, it, it connects to the gig economy because people are being relentless with their individual purpose. Yeah. And if organizations cannot make their purpose clear mm-hmm. and resonate, mm-hmm. then they are in a, in a really bad position. So organizational identity is something that I've been really interested um, in lately because I think this next generation is is connecting their identity to mm-hmm. either what they're going to do or an organization that uh, aligns with, with their own identity. No, I totally agree, actually. I have a, you would really love this book, by the way. I should probably send you a copy. Uh, no, because there is an entire chapter on the purpose uh, that, uh, and the title of that uh, chapter is "The Future Is Meaningful: uh, Instill a Purpose," right? Uh, and what that means is that uh, gone are the days where a CEO would hold this huge check and give it to the charity, and then put that picture on their annual report, and there would be a paragraph about that, and that's pretty much it. Now, I think you need to live and breathe. You need to, you know, shed your blood, sweat, and tears every single day um, and everything you do has to be aligned with that purpose so it doesn't look so disconnected that it's not like these two people in the company sitting in that corner are the only responsible people for the CSR or for the purpose the entire company is completely committed to it and driven by it absolutely uh, and that is that is so important because uh, there is a, I had a, an episode actually when, when I first started the podcast about this idea of workplace spirituality, which yeah. fascinates me because it is around this organizational identity piece. And, you know, the organization is an entity of itself. You know, what you, what it, what it is driven to do, what motivates it, when, when does it say no? And you know, when I say it, you know, you're talking about like leadership for the most part, but then the other piece is how do people, how are you, is your purpose uh, waking your people up every morning and saying, I'm, I'm going to work to do this? Uh, and I also think people are in jobs that their purpose doesn't align with the purpose of the organization. That's why they're miserable, unfortunately. And so it's, a, again, an opportunity for awakening to say, and that's why the shuffle, this, this shuffle of people is happening right now, because people are waking up saying, my purpose never aligned with this organization, so I'm I'm out. Peace out. <laughs> and so that's where and that's where the gig economy comes in when people realize like, oh, I can do this on my own, monetize it, and then have freedom and set my own schedule. Uh, you know, why didn't I think about this a decade ago? No, I agree. And, you know, a lot of the companies think that, uh, you know, we don't have time for the purpose and the CSR. Our job as leaders is to increase shareholder value. But guess what? One way to increase the shareholder value is to create an inspired set of employees, right? And um, I think it was Bain and company who did this study and they found that uh, if you have an employee who is happy, just happy with, uh, you know, with the company, they will essentially give you 100% of their productivity. If you have an employee who is motivated by financial gains, for example, they will give you maybe 144% of their productivity. But if you have an employee who is truly inspired, that's different than being motivated. 
they would give you 225% of their productivity. Imagine that. I mean, it's almost like doubling your workforce with the same cost. So having a purpose and having a CSR is not just morally the right thing to do. For business leaders, it's actually the most pragmatic thing you can do because it essentially ends up in the bottom line. Yes. And so I, I wanted to ask you, because you, you're, you were a CEO, you ran a company. Why do leaders have such a mental block with this concept? I mean, my experience is, you know, I spend, you know, because I'm, I'm in the, the, the field of working with CEOs and executives and helping them understand why we should work on engagement or why we should work on, uh, you know, uh, performance and development and all these things that seem Sometimes, like, I get the response, like, this, this is frivolous, you know, like, this is a nice to have. So what is, where is the mental block coming in? Because we have all this data. Is it time? Help, help, help me understand. <laughs> no, it's the way, uh, you know, things have been done in the past. Uh, you know, it's a traditional way of managing. Even uh, Milton Friedman, you know, who is a renowned economist, uh, he wrote an article in New York Times in 1970, and uh, his whole thesis in that article was that uh, the entire purpose of companies' leaders should be to increase the shareholder value. Companies' leaders have no responsibility for the community at large. And I actually end my chapter with one liner that says, needless to say, in 1970, Mr. Friedman had not met Gen Zers and millennials. So one way to actually create awareness with, uh, with company leaders is to you know, show them, first of all, so many surveys done. I, I actually write a few of them in the book that um, some 75% of the millennials would actually switch jobs despite getting paid less to work for a company with a higher purpose, you know, with a stronger purpose. Uh, Gen Zers would not only look at your website and see what you're amazing, you know, all the big things you're writing and the big words you're using, but they would actually do research <laughs> they will make sure that you're walking your talk. I mean, they're pretty nosy people. Uh, they are a skeptical bunch. And so they're going to find out if you're going to, you know, you're just, uh, you know, making things up or you're really walking your talk. So uh, that's one way to do that is obviously, you know, show them some of the surveys done and let them have a focus group with their own employees who are Gen Zers and millennials and ask them how important it is for them to have a purpose. I mean, uh, just one quick thing that comes to my mind, Angela, is I thought, you know, according to Maslow's Law of Hierarchy, younger people in U.S. are more likely to be, you know, open to this whole concept of have, companies must have a purpose and, you know, there must be a CSR angle to the company. But I live in the Philippines. We did a survey within our own company and the younger folks within my company are equally passionate about having the right purpose and uh, company believing in a CSR, company having a social cause. So it has nothing to do with Maslow's law of hierarchy. They may not come from the same background in terms of riches or the economic strata, 
but all young people throughout the world, because of internet and how interconnected they are, they all want to do the same thing. So it's a global phenomenon. And it goes back, I think, to our original, uh, the original thing you mentioned about humans, right? I mean, this is like full circle. It goes back to this. These are elements that make us human. And if, yes, organizations can focus on AI to do these tasks, but if you're employing humans, which you're going to still need to do because there are things that AI can't do, like lead and influence, you've influencing is the it's the toughest part i mean building a machine is really hard but uh influencing human beings is even tougher because you're working with um some similarities which is things like purpose and uh but you know being able to motivate and inspire is such a uh a tough thing to do and so i think leaders struggle with that especially leaders who you know it's black and white right like we have a goal, we're going to meet that goal, and there's no gray in between as to how that goal is met. And that's where people burn out, and I think that's where people leave companies because there's nothing, there's no soul uh, for them to, or purpose for them to connect to. Absolutely, you know, and, and um, uh, it, it reminds me of the paradox that we have in our society now, Angela, and that is um, if you look at what's happening in the, the AI world, Companies are spending billions of dollars in trying to make AI more human. So now you have chatbots that can you know, answer as if there was a human being sitting in India answering your chat. There are companies who are trying to add empathy into AI. There, are, there is um, Sophia, the humanoid robot. They have created a face and it can emote some 32,000 different emotions. I didn't even know we have that many emotions, but we do. I mean, our face can, you know, with all the permutations, can come up with 32,000 ways of expressing our emotions. We are spending so much money doing that, and yet, what do we do after we hire our employees? We put them through rules and regulations, we give them a manual, we give them a training, we put a fence around them, and say, badge out your humanity, forget about your creativity. This is what we want you to do. So we are taking humans and making them robots while we are trying to make robots and trying to make them humans. That needs to change. I think companies over the next 10 years need to really think about how do they bring out the soft skills of their employees. How do we allow our humans to really regain, to reclaim their humanness that we have taken away from them? And I, I saw that. I mean, I, I worked in an industry, business process outsourcing. We used to have thousands of employees taking calls on behalf of American customers or Australian customers, answering emails, answering chats. And it was such a regularized environment that we did not give our employees a chance to think on their feet. And in the last five years that I was with the company, I started, you know, along with some other industry leaders, uh, did a pilot where we went to our clients and said, hey, I know you're giving us business, but you're also giving us this very strong framework to work within. And we're losing our employees. They're burning out, to your point earlier, because they, they don't feel like they are alive when they are doing it. They feel like they are machines. 
So we, we did the pilot which allowed them to think on their feet. And guess what? That worked. And companies actually said, you know what? We'll be, will, we'll be willing to pay more money if you can find employees and train them to think on their feet. But it was so hard to do because we have, been, we have trained these people for 15 years not to think. And then we said, hey, now you start thinking. It's very hard. Yeah, you, um, gosh, your, your analogy about making AI more human and humans more, like, that just, that hit my, my heart and my soul because that is, that is the work we're doing here, right? And it's, it's, a, it's, it's discouraging. Um, it's encouraging that I think we're moving, people are realizing that we can't afford not to do that, making workplaces more human. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's a strong, uh, concept that you just mentioned here, which is we're paying, we're paying bots and I, AI to become more human, but we're not investing in our people who are human and using that capability that is so unique and powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It's so I think, um, the future is human. <laughs> I mean, I actually have, you know, two chapters. One says future is AI, be a human. But then the other one says future is people, be an alchemist. What does that mean? That uh, people are not going anywhere over the next 10 years. Technology is not going to replace us, at least for the next 10 years. Uh, we need to be an alchemist. We, are, we need to be the person, that spark that brings out the best in other people and ourselves. If we can do that, then obviously, you know, our careers and our companies are future-proof. Malik, it was an absolute pr pleasure. Uh, I loved this conversation. I think that you are you are onto something, and I know you're executing on that with with your um, with your work. And so, thank you for all you do. Um, and is there anything else you want to mention before we kind of close out today? No, well, thank you, uh, Angela, for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. It didn't feel like a podcast, actually. It felt like I'm talking to a friend that I've known for many years. Um, so we need to continue our conversation beyond this podcast. But, uh, you know, if anybody is interested in um, checking out the book, it's available on Amazon, and it's uh, titled Future Proof Your Career and Company flourish in an era of AI, digital natives, and the gig economy. Perfect. And we will make sure to put a link in the show notes so people can directly access that. Thank you again so much. And thanks for sharing your insights and your knowledge and your magic with us. I really, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Angela. 